We've looked at 1 Timothy for our first two lessons as we consider godliness, and I would like to once again look at Paul's letter, his first letter to Timothy, and focus in on one verse in chapter 6, and verse 6, which says this, But godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So we have defined godliness. Godliness is a whom or a who. My wife and I went home last week and debated whether that was a predicate nominative or an object or whether it should be who or whom, and we both agreed that we didn't know precisely, but that's sort of irrelevant here. Either way, we saw that Christ or that godliness is a person, it is Christ. And more specifically, we have talked about godliness including not merely actions, although certainly including actions, not merely the religious pursuits, but those things which flow from an attitude that seeks with sincerity to please God, to serve God, to honor God, to be more like the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So we've defined godliness. We have talked about the gain of godliness, the promise that the Scripture holds out, promise for the future in that we will enter into the kingdom of God, and godliness is one of the indicators that we are in that kingdom and moving toward that kingdom. Uh, we talked about the eternal life that is part of that kingdom. And we talked about the hope for here and now, the promise for the here and now, that we can see evidence that the Spirit is working and leading us down the path of godliness, which assures us that we will enter that kingdom in all of its fullness someday. And we discussed how one of the promises for now is that we have been incorporated into the body of Christ. And we gain brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children. We are family and there are many blessings that come with that. So we've seen godliness and we've seen gain. And Paul wants Timothy and us to understand that godliness is a, a means of great gain if it is with contentment. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by or with contentment. What is contentment? Maybe you have read the classic by Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan, called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. How many of you have read that? One, two people. You need to read this book. It's a very thin book but it's very, very thick in its content. It is not the kind of book you skim. It is not the kind of book you hurry through and read it in an afternoon. It's the kind of book that you sip slowly and drink deeply from. It is the classic work, and I commend it to you. And he makes a couple of comments that are worth our consideration. He says that contentment is the Spirit's work indoors. It is the work of the Spirit indoors, and I love that phrase. First of all, he's talking about how contentment is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is not the kind of thing that we can simply decide to be content, and voila, we are content. It requires the Holy Spirit of God to be working. Now, as we saw last time, Peter tells us we have the Spirit of God. We have everything we need for godliness, for life eternal life and the present life in the power of the Holy Spirit through His Word. And so if contentment is a work of the Spirit, thankfully we have that Spirit and contentment is something that we can achieve. And he says it's the work of the Spirit indoors, meaning in the soul, in our spirit. Contentment is not an external thing. You don't simply do contentment, but it flows from the heart, from the inner man, it's a quietness of the heart, says Burroughs. And I think he captures it very well, and I would encourage you to read that. Then he describes it this way. He says, contentment is freely submitting 
and freely submitting and taking pleasure in God's disposal. Contentment is freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal. Now, think of this for a moment. Let's look at let's take this apart. Submission. Submission is not a word that we always like to hear, especially in a culture which basically says, don't submit to anything. No one will be your master. Uh, it's, it's a bad word in, in modern jargon. But, of course, it's all over Scripture, and in the Scripture it is a wonderful word. If nothing else teaches us that, the fact that our Lord Jesus Himself submitted Himself to God the Father shows us that it is a good thing. Submission is a word that literally means to place yourself under. It is a choice. When a woman submits to her husband, she is making a choice. No one is compelling her to do it. She is saying, especially on her wedding day, she is saying to her husband, I am now handing over the deed to you. I entrust it to you, and I'm doing it willingly. Now, her Hope and trust there is that she's entrusting herself to someone who's going to treat her well and be an honorable head over her. But submission is all over the scripture, and Burroughs says that contentment is submitting ourselves to God's disposal, to His providence, to Him doing whatever it is that He wants to do. Contentment is saying, I trust God. Now, if you're going to trust God, you have to believe three things about Him. Uh, uh, Dr. Bridges, Jerry Bridges, wrote a book called Trusting God where he amplifies these three things, and that's another book I would commend to you. If you are going to trust God, you have to, first of all, believe that God is sovereign. It doesn't do you any good to trust somebody that can't do anything, that doesn't have power to do what He sets out to do and to what He says He will do. We have to believe that God is in utter and absolute control of all things. The Bible couldn't be more clear about this. The scripture says that not a sparrow falls from a tree to the ground apart from the will of the Father. Jesus didn't say God has decided not to exercise his sovereignty and allow a sparrow to fall or not fall depending on what he wants to do. Jesus said a bird doesn't die unless God is willing that that bird dies. He's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over the hairs on our head. He's in complete control. That should give us comfort, and it gives us a reason to trust him. But suppose he had all of this power, but he was a fool. We wouldn't trust someone that had great power who made tremendously foolish decisions. And I know presidents maybe are rattling around in your head or other world leaders that had a lot of power, but they didn't use that power well. God is all wise. He doesn't make mistakes. There's never an oops with God. Hmm, should try that again. That wasn't so successful. I'll have to rethink this. That doesn't happen in the mind of God. Everything he does is according to absolute wisdom. That makes him trustworthy. He's powerful. He's wise. The third element that is required to trust someone is to believe that they are good. We have to believe that God is not an evil God, that he would not intentionally do us harm or deceive us and mislead us, but that his motive behind whatsoever he does is good. And again, the scripture describes God and his goodness over and over and over again. So the God that we trust in is a God who has all power, he has all wisdom, and he is altogether benevolent toward us. If that is true, then how do we ever decide not to trust him? He can do whatever he wants, whatever he decides to do is the right thing, and it's always for our good. He's working everything together for our good. He loves us and desires to be kind and favorable to us. It's all over the scripture. 
He is trustworthy. Therefore, we should submit ourselves to him. Contentment is saying, I do trust him. I do believe in his power. I do believe in his wisdom. I do believe in his goodness. And I will freely place myself under whatsoever he brings to pass. You will not be content. You cannot be content unless those things are true of your thinking. But notice the next phrase. Maybe we can wrap our minds around and conform our wills to the idea that he's trustworthy and all that, and yes, I should submit myself to his providence, even when his providence is hard. But look at the next phrase. Taking pleasure in God's providence. My guess is, of the three legs of trusting God, the hardest one for us is to trust that he's good. Because there are things that occur that cause us to doubt at times, is he really good in bringing this difficult thing to pass? Well, similarly, taking pleasure in the providence of God can prove a great challenge to our souls. Sometimes God's providence is poured out in such a way that it's quite easy to delight ourselves in God's will, in what God is doing. It makes us happy, it's comfortable, it's easy, it's downright fun at times. But what about those times when it's not fun? What about those times when it's difficult? When the Lord does things that it takes every ounce of mental energy we have to find a way to reconcile this with goodness and to take pleasure in it. But true contentment strives for that. True contentment says, because God is all wise and all good and all knowing and all powerful, because he has my best interest in mind, because he's God, I'm going to strive to not simply tolerate his providence, not simply content myself with his providence, as we use the phrase, but to actually delight in whatever he brings to pass. To truly conform our will to his to such a degree that we say, it is your will that matters to me. It is your will and what you desire to come to pass that brings me the greatest joy. It's what Piper talks about all the time, that, we, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And that satisfaction that he's talking about is not the kind of satisfaction where we just put on a strong face and we deal with whatever he brings about. He's talking about a true, heartfelt delight in whatsoever God brings about. That's what Burroughs is getting at when he says that contentment is finding or taking pleasure in whatever God brings about. We cannot be truly content until we can taste the sweetness of God's providence no matter what he brings to pass. Think about that. We are not truly content until we can taste the sweetness of God's providence no matter what it is that he brings to pass. And again, the place we go for our model of this is the Lord Jesus. I want to remind you of that chapter in Isaiah 53 that we know so well and draw your attention to one particular phrase in this chapter. You know this. We read it frequently when we partake of the Lord's Supper. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. All of this obviously speaking of the Lord Jesus who would come. He was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and a man acquainted with grief. One like those from whom men hide their face. People didn't want to look at him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he bore, our sorrows he cared. We esteemed him stricken. He was pierced through our, for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities and on. He was oppressed and afflicted and on and on it goes. 
Then in verse 10, it says, the Lord was pleased to crush him. And that's one of those phrases that continues to cause, at least me, great contemplation. It's almost inconceivable to really think that the Father would be pleased to crush his innocent son. But that's what the word says. He was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself a guilt offering. Now here's what it says about the servant who had come. This is what he says about Christ. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. That word satisfied is from the same meaning as contentment. The son, the servant, the, the, sacri- the, the Christ who would come will look back and see the Father crushing him for our sins and he will look back on that and his soul will be content. He will look back and take pleasure in God's disposal. It was God's pleasure to crush him and it was the son's pleasure to be crushed. And Jesus himself acknowledged his conformity to the will of his Father in the garden, as we've already spoken of, where Jesus is there knowing what is coming, knowing the bruising is coming. And he says, Father, if, if, it's your, if you're willing, let's, let's do this another way. But the bottom line is, it's not my will that matters. I have such delight and pleasure in serving you that if it is your will that we carry through with this and I bear the bitter cup, I'm happy to do that. And he did it. And here as a prophecy of what Jesus would say afterward, we find out that Jesus looked back on his work, on the crushing, and he's content. He's pleased. He delights to do his Father's bidding. This was Jesus' life. He repeated this over and over and over again. In John's Gospel, it is most salient. He said, I don't judge except as the Father gives me to judge. I see the Father raising the dead and I give life like the Father gives life. He forgives sins because he observes the Father forgiving sins. This is what Jesus did. He said, I came with one purpose and one only, to do my Father's will. Think about what that meant for Christ. Here's the co-eternal second person of the Trinity existing for all prior time, if there is such a thing as prior time and eternity. Here he is, all the glory of God, because he is God. We don't have three gods, we have one God. But the second person, who we know now as the Son of God, as Jesus, he, uh, he, he sets aside the glory that was his as God, takes on human flesh, comes here to earth, and submits himself to the Father and really says, I'm not going to take advantage of any of my divine rights. I'm simply here to do what the Father tells me to do. And he did it every day. That's all he did. What would you have me do today, Father? I'm content not to exercise anything for my benefit, but to simply do what you want me to do. And his life proves this over and over and over again. This is how he lived. He was not concerned to please himself. His all-consuming passion was to please his Father. Think with me about the time of temptation in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus there encounters the great nemesis who tempts him to act on his own behalf. We pick up in chapter 4 with verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Notice twice in that verse the Holy Spirit is referenced. When the Son of God came to earth as a man and took on human flesh, do you realize He didn't do anything of any significance that was not empowered by the Holy Spirit? 
in his humanity the strength to persevere, the power to do miraculous things, the authority to cast out demons. Everything that he did was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Here's the man, Jesus, with the third person of the Trinity giving him the ability to do these things. It's that same Spirit who indwells you and me. We have the same power. We have the same Spirit. Now, we're not called to the same mission, and therefore we're not going to go around raising the dead and and, uh, healing people in the way that He did, but it's that same power that indwells us to provoke in us genuine godliness. Just draw your attention to that because here in the very first verse of chapter 4, twice the Spirit is mentioned. It was the source of Jesus' power and abilities. It says, He ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Now, there are many, many different aspects of this that we could get into, but what I want us to focus on here is, here is Satan tempting Jesus to do something for his own benefit and to do it to prove himself. Are you the Son of God? All these people are talking about you being the Son of God. The king, you know, Herod was concerned that you're going to be the king of the Jews, the Messiah, and and he checked in with all the scholars to see where Messiah would be born and all that. I see all this, says Satan. Are you really the Son of God? If you are, then prove it. Because the Son of God surely could do something as simple as this. Just take this, uh, this stone and turn it into bread. I know you're hungry. It's been 40 days. Jesus says, no. Man doesn't live on bread alone. I can get by without bread. I'm not going to cave to you, Satan. And I'm not interested in displaying my power for your benefit. There's nothing that I'm going to do for myself because you asked me. Now, if the Lord, if God asked him to display his glory in turning the stone to bread, you better believe he would do it. But he's not going to do it for Satan's benefit. And he's not going to do it because he's hungry. It wasn't his temporal desires that were foremost in our Lord's mind. It was honoring the Father. Well, Satan doesn't give up. He led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, I know it's easy for us to hear this and think, you know, this is no temptation at all. I mean, Jesus knew he was going to get the throne. He knew he was going to ascend into heaven and be the cosmic king. This is nothing. He's probably saying, who are you kidding? But that's not the way these temptations are presented. There must have been some pull on Jesus. There must have been some reason this provided a temptation. But again, we see Jesus' response. What, I concern, what I'm concerned with more than anything else is to please God, to please my Father. And here's what my Father says. You worship Him and Him only. So go ahead, put before me all of these opportunities. I am not after my own will. I am submitting myself and taking pleasure in God's providence, in God's will, what God wants. So Satan, you are wasting your time. I have one mission, and that is to serve my father. Well, Satan doesn't give up again. He led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. All right, you're going to use scripture with me? Satan says, I can play that game. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Ha! The word that you keep quoting, Jesus, says if you jump off of here, the angels of God will come and make sure that you don't even break a toenail. Jesus answered and said, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I could do that. Absolutely, I could jump off of here, and God would do what he said he would do. And I wouldn't hurt myself. 
But it's not about you, Satan. I am not interested in displaying anything for your benefit. I'm only interested in serving with the Father, serving God. And so I'm not going to jump off of here. I'm not going to put him to the test. Now again, if the Father had said to the Lord, if he had said to Jesus, I want you to jump off of here so I can prove my word, then I guarantee you he would have done so. But he's not interested in, in satisfying anything of Satan. His only concern is to do what pleases God. Think of the contrast of Jesus as Satan tempts him and Eve as Satan tempted her. Certainly the surroundings were very different. Eve was in a lush place, paradise. Jesus was out in the wilderness and hadn't eaten for 40 days. So the devil comes to her and asks her a question. Did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees of the garden? Well, no, he says. We can eat from all of them except that one. But what did the devil do right there? He provoked discontent. Yeah, but, but there's one. You can eat of that one and 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 that one over there, but that one there, it's off limits. You're not going to be content with that, are you, Eve? Look, he's keeping something from you. Don't submit yourself to God's providence. You can have it all. That's probably the best tasting apple in the whole garden right there. Hmm. Eve thinks, well, it does look pretty good for food. And then the devil says, you know, God lied to you. You're not going to die. That's an idle threat. What's going to happen is you're going to become wise like him, and he doesn't want you to have that kind of wisdom. So go ahead and eat of it and become wise. And she looks at it and sees it's delicious for her food, and it can make her wise. She's not content with her degree of wisdom. What God has given her is not enough. She now sees she can have more. Oh, I can be like God. He's holding out on me. This is great. And she gives in because she's not content with the way God has worked things out. David is another example. David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, do you remember when the prophet comes to rebuke him, through Nathan, God says, Look, David, I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives. I gave you many, many wives. And if that weren't enough, I would have given you more. And I gave you rule over all of my people. And I gave you victory over all of your enemies. I gave you everything you could possibly want. And you weren't content. And he wasn't. Rather than being satisfied with the abundance that God had been pleased to dispose upon him, he said, who, who is she? Bring her to me. Oh, she got a husband? I'll take care of that. He wasn't content. Jesus is our model. We see models of discontent throughout the scripture. We must strive to be like Christ and say, I submit myself to the Father and I will take pleasure in whatever he brings to pass. Now, if we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, the context here is contentment in our wealth. Let me read the following verses for you. He says, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. There's no use packing a bag for the cemetery. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And listen to this. This is how serious discontentedness with respect to wealth gets. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The Desire for more and more and more possessions and wealth and money is a tremendous obstacle in the walk of faith. And some give up their pursuit of godliness and turn around and go the other way because over there 
they can become richer. Serious business, the apostle says. So we have to ask ourselves, what kind of work is the Spirit doing in your indoors, in your insides, with respect to wealth? Is your heart and mind quiet? Is your conscience and your will quiet when it comes to money and possessions? Would, would you be described more as greedy or satisfied with whatever the Lord has given you, whether He's given you an abundance or given you little? And probably in your lifetime you've had some of both. How would you describe what's going on in there? Are you basically an envious person of others or are you happy? Happy for them and happy in your own soul for what the Lord has brought about. Let me put this in a different context a little bit. Are you content with your potential for wealth? Those of you who are working full-time jobs, are you content with how much you can make in your current place? Or do you find yourself struggling inside because you don't see a lot of open doors that would provide more? Do you take pleasure in God's providence and where He has brought you right now in your financial situation? Or are you looking for a way, there's got to be a way to get more, to get more, to get more? How about your opportunities? How about the opportunities out there for you to grow your portfolios? Do you take pleasure in what God has given you now? Or are you simply tolerating it, hoping that maybe someday he will expand that. But your inheritance. It's not as big a deal as it was once in mankind's history, but are you content with what your forebears are going to leave you? Retirement? 401ks? Are you content? knowing that if your time of retirement is near, God is sovereignly, wisely, and benevolently in control of what has happened to our economy over the last couple of years. And your 401k or whatever your retirement is, or whatever those letters numbers combined are for you, is exactly what God in His trustworthiness has been pleased to dispose for you. True contentment doesn't simply grin and bear it. True contentment says, I trust God. I'm going to find a way to be satisfied with what you've brought about because you're good. And I know there's wisdom here. Now that's the context of 1 Timothy 6, but we know this applies in other areas. Contentment is not merely a struggle for us in the area of finances. How about appearances. How about the way you look? How about the way you don't look? How about the way you used to look? <laughs> Are you content? Do you find within you a forced submission because you can't do anything about it? Or a delight because a good and wise God is in control of how you look? You know, as, I, as well as I do, you can't make yourself any taller. It's impossible. Technology has not found a way, and they may never. You can't make yourself shorter. Some people want to be shorter. Some people want to be taller. But your facial features, you content with those? You find yourself longing to be different? If only this were a little more like that or a little less like that. If this were a little bigger or a little smaller. A little less obvious, a little bluer, a little bigger, a little tinier. Did God have anything to do with the way you look? The psalmist seemed to think so. You knit me in my inward parts. You started right there in my mother's womb and began your creativity. And when I came out, I came out exactly according to your design. That's my paraphrase. Psalm 139. And you have grown up to be exactly what the blueprint said you would be. 
Do you take pleasure in that? Or are you constantly comparing yourself to other standards and thinking, oh, I don't look like that person. I don't have those features. What you're doing when you do that is saying, Mr. Architect, either you failed miserably in your design or you're not a very good designer. God made us how we are, and he wants us to take pleasure in how he has made us. Voice quality. This was, this was a big one for me. Since the since time I was a young boy, I wanted to have a big, booming bass voice. I have always wanted to just make the rafters shake, but how by speaking and singing. I don't have that kind of voice. And I hear some of these preachers, you know, that, man, when they talk, and when they talk as if they were God, I'm just, whoa. <laughs> Nobody does that when I put on my God voice. <laughs> I don't have a God voice. <laughs> Got to be content. Got to take pleasure in the somewhere between not quite a good at tenor and not a baritone and not really anything, quite frankly, voice, but that's how God has, has made me. But your age? Struggle to be content? Take pleasure with where you are in life? You look back at the lost years as though God didn't have anything to do with all those previous years? Suddenly he's shown up right now and he cares and he's working in your life, but oh, man, for 30 years, where have you been, God? That's not how it works. Those last 30 years are by design. Take pleasure in them and be content. How about gifts and abilities? How about the things you're good at or not good at? Who decides what you're good at and what you're not good at? Who decides what abilities you have? Do you? I can tell you this. I'm convinced, if nothing else, by artistry, like painting, you just can't hone that if you don't have it. I don't have it. I, you've seen me draw. I don't even draw stick figures. Anybody can really understand what I'm drawing. That's why I switched to the, to the PowerPoint stuff, because at least then I've got a computer doing it for me on some other things. But, but you can't make yourself. You know, the fact of the matter is, some people can play music. Some people can play guitar. Some people can sing. And some people can't. In, in this area, there really are the haves and the have-nots, or the have-the-littles. And that's just the way it is. Now, if you have, you can hone that. Like any other talent, you can improve your proficiency. But if you don't have it, that's just the way it is. And some of you sing so enthusiastically on Sunday morning. And it's a wonderful thing. That's great. That's the way you should do it. The Lord doesn't say sing if you have a pretty voice. But not all of us belong in a quartet or an ensemble where people are going to be hearing just a few of our voices put together. <laughs> are you content with your gifts and talents? What about spiritual gifts? Who decides what your role in the church is? It's not you. It's not even the elders. Now, the church is to confirm gifts, but we call them spiritual gifts because they are gifts given by the Holy Spirit. And the scripture says unequivocally they are given sovereignly. He decides what part you play. So we must learn to be content. We must learn to say, I delight to be the earlobe if that's what God has made me. I'm pleased to be the uvula. <laughs> Mine's forked, by the way. If you want to come see it later, I'll show you. I don't know what the uvula does, but some of you are the uvula of the body of Christ. And you need to do that with all of the delight and passion you can muster. You're not called to do other things. You're called to do whatever God has called you to do. And it's so easy to become jealous and envious of others and other giftings. See, I grew up thinking God had called me to a career in music. I was convinced I was one of the haves. And I believed I was going to bless the church most profoundly by writing and, and, and producing and singing and performing 
Christian music that would lift your soul to God. That's what I thought was going to happen. And God said, no. That's my God voice. Anybody shrinking back in fear? God said, that's not what I've called you to do. I've called you to be a preacher and a pastor. Now, you know, this life is not quite as glamorous as the other one that I had expected was coming. And I don't spend my time just pondering beautiful ways to phrase certain things to speak to you. And I don't, you know, my calluses have worn off from my guitar hand. But it's what God has called me to do. And by His grace, I'm finding the ability to take pleasure in His providence, even though His plan and my plan were not the same. How about your gifts? How about your talents? Are you pleased to use them for His glory and say, you gave them to me, this is what you've given? Or do you struggle that you're not something else? What family background? You look back at your family life, parents, siblings, location, your dad's job, health concerns, even more sobering things like abusive situations, hurtful situations. Do you look back on those things and think, that was just horrible? Now, from one perspective, some things really are horrible. And contentment does not mean that we take really evil things and uplift them as though they were inherently good. But from a different perspective, every horrible thing that occurred in your life, every circumstance that was against you was all part of the orchestration of a good, wise, and powerful God. And He has brought you through what He has brought you through expecting you to trust Him and delight in His disposal of your life. Don't look back at regret. Certainly, there are things that if it were up to you, you would change. But it wasn't up to you. And so that's where we turn and say, Lord, I don't understand, and some of it was hard, and some of it was painful, and it's not the way it seems like you want it to be. And yet, it very clearly was the way he ultimately wanted it to be because that's the way it happened. And we should look back and say, I am going to submit myself to that and find satisfaction and pleasure in what you have done. That's true contentment. Paul learned to be content. He understood this. And he tells us about it in Philippians chapter 4. Look with me at verses 8 and following. Finally, brethren, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. We could spend a lot of time right here. How much wasted time do we spend dwelling on things that profit us nothing, do not encourage us in our faith, and actually produce discontentment in our lives? Paul says, think about things that are true and honorable, things that are right and pure and lovely, things worthy of your contemplation and reflection. At, at best, pondering other things is a waste of time. And it's a sin because we're not redeeming the time. At worst, we are simply pursuing a path in direct contradiction to what God has called us to. We are to dwell on things that are lovely and pure. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before you lacked opportunity, but not that, not that I speak from want. And here's the key. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, 
and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstances, circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and being hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And here's the verse. You've probably memorized this verse. You know this verse. And I would almost guarantee you, for most people, you have memorized this verse completely out of context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That does not mean, gentlemen, that you can, in the power of Christ, go out and pick up your car. You can't. He's not promised to give you that strength. You can't do everything there is to do. That's not the point of the verse. What Paul's getting at is, I can be content in each and every situation because of Christ. And here's a man who understood the ups and the downs. There was a time in Paul's life when he was at the top of the top of influence in Judaism. He said himself, I'm a, I was a Pharisee of Pharisee, a Jew of Jew. It doesn't get any better. And he looks back at all that. He says, that's rubbish. It meant nothing. But he doesn't look back with discontent. God had a purpose in that. God brought me through believing a lie. And think about what he did. He murdered Christ's people. He was responsible for the death and persecution of people who served Jesus. And Paul doesn't look back at that time with utter despair and regret. I'm sure he regretted it from one standpoint, but he realizes God had a plan. God's purposes and disposal was to bring him through that so that he could show him his great mercy. And Paul understood the grace of God in a way that probably none of us ever will. I mean, I've committed a lot of sin, and you've committed a lot of sin, but to stand before the Lord, personally responsible for the death of his people, and then to hear Jesus say, I forgive you, and I'm going to use you to transform the world, to turn it upside down. There's a reason why Paul said, my life isn't mine anymore, it's Christ's. They can beat me, they can burn me, they can mock me, they can ridicule me, they can do whatever they want to me. I'm serving Christ. I have been forgiven by the Lord whom I persecuted. And so Paul walked into every town knowing he was most likely going to end up in jail or the hospital right away. He said, go ahead, go ahead. And his own people turned on him. The Jews hated him. Christians hated him. False apostles uh, just took him apart and slammed him, repudiated him, and, and called him all kinds of names and said, look, he's got no power, he's got no adequacy, he, he's not, he doesn't even have the sign of an apostle. What are you doing listening to him? Everywhere he went, he faced some kind of opposition and persecution, either character or, or bodily. He said, I've learned to be content with it all. I've learned to hang out with people who had money, who took me to nice restaurants, and I preached the gospel to him there, and hey, it was fun. And we went to the Broncos game, and we had a great time, and life was good. And I've learned to go days and days and days without food, being beaten within an inch of my life on multiple occasions, stoned and left for dead. And I have found that I can endure all things with contentment because of Christ. That's another model for us. There is nothing in your life, beloved, nothing that God in His providence has or is or will bring you through that you cannot find true joy and satisfaction in because Christ is able to give you the strength to do it. We will not have contentment without the pursuit of godliness. Godliness is Christ. He's our model. We pursue Him. We follow the example of Paul and others, and we strive for this. Contentment is absolutely essential if we are going to achieve godliness 
and bear fruit of godliness. Think about this. Think about joy. It's one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit we talked about last week. You cannot have joy if you're discontent. You can't. Discontent people are not filled with joy. What do discontent people do? They complain and complain and complain and everything is against them and everything is horrible. There's no joy there. You're not progressing down the path of godliness if you are a complainer. That complaining comes from discontent. Another fruit of the Spirit is peace. People who are not content, they don't have peace with themselves, they don't have peace with other people, and they don't have peace with God. They're always at war because discontent people are miserable people. They can always think of something better. Nothing ever works out the way they want, them to. They want it to, and so they make themselves miserable. And someone who's miserable, everybody they rub up against, they try to find a way to make them miserable. There's no peace in that kind of situation. Contentment, true delight in what God is doing and has done, allows us to be at peace. Hey, God's in control here. I trust Him. How can we get along? God, I trust you. How can we get along? I want to be at peace with you. Discontent people have no patience because they're not content with the speed at which things are happening. They're constantly demanding, demanding, demanding that things go a different way. That's not the mark of contentment. And that is not what the Spirit of God wants to produce in us. But with true contentment, we can wait on the Lord. We can wait on others. We can patiently persevere and endure what He brings about because we understand there's a good God at work. Discontent people lack self-control. Discontent people are impulsive. Always making decisions right now based on what they feel at the moment because they're not content to wait on the Lord and see what the Lord would produce. I've got to make a decision now because I want it now, I want it now, I want it now. And there's no self-control in that. And I could go on and on down the list, but you get the picture. We cannot per proceed down the path of godliness and go anywhere unless we first understand and exhibit true pleasure and delight and submission to what God's will is. Paul understood this. Jesus understood this. We must understand this. Contentment is the key to our pursuit of godliness. If we don't trust Him, we don't delight in His plan, I mean truly delight in it, again, not just simply tolerate it, but find great satisfaction and pleasure in His plan. If we don't have His will as our highest goal, then we certainly are not going to pro progress any further down the road to contentment. Our actions... And our attitudes are not going to become more godly. To be godly, we must be Christ-like. And Christ was profoundly content with God's providence.